This is Steve Kim. Wesley Hoff. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. All right, so we're back for another edition of the AC Podcast, this time with me and Wesley. Uh, This has never happened before, just you and me. No, it's very exciting. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, Before we get started, just a fair warning to our listeners. Uh, In today's episode, we deal with mature subject matter. So if you have children, especially really young ones with an earshot, I ask that you exercise your parental discretion. Uh, So yeah, let's uh, get started. Today, we're going to be talking about this technology called deepfake. Now, I'm going to let Wesley fill us in more on this, but just to give you an idea as to what this technology does, if you're not already familiar with it, imagine something like this. Let's say you record yourself talking about, I don't know, red carpet and, and how red carpet is awesome, and then take the face of, say, Barack Obama, and you basically splice it onto the video, and you take his voice and everything, so it looks like... It is not you, but it is actually Barack Obama talking about red carpet and how awesome it is. That sort of gives you an idea as to what this technology does. And and we're going to be talking about just all of the implications that come out of that, because as you can probably tell already, it reveals something very interesting about what we think about morality, uh, what we think about reality, about truth, those kinds of things. So, Wesley, what was your reaction when you first encountered this? I mean, you're the one who brought this to my attention, so you're better acquainted with this, but I'm just curious, what was your reaction there? Yeah, so I was doing a a little bit of digging, and uh, what I found was basically that this technology has been in progression for a number of years now. It actually started on uh, an account on the website Reddit, uh, with an individual by the username of Deepfakes. So the origin of that name came from this individual's username on that website. And what he was doing is he was using machine learning algorithms basically to make pornography. So he was getting a lot of attention, uh, which actually led to an entire subreddit on the website dedicated to this with thousands of copycats that started to pop up. This was about approximately two, three years ago. And essentially what they do is they take pornography and they designed it to put celebrities' faces on it, to merge with them. The way that it works is, uh, to get a little bit nerdy, um, is that it takes an open source machine learning AI and it takes the algorithm from the AI in uh, programs such as Google's TensorFlow And then it puts them to work by splicing these videos and footage together. So you provide the content for the AI, more or less, and the AI does the rest of the editing. And so the technology is not perfect. You can see that there's something a little bit off. And some of the articles I read pointed out that sometimes it goes terribly wrong. It would invert people's faces and stuff like that. Uh, But... um, On the whole, it's pretty crazy technology. 
uh, especially concerning the whole issue of privacy and what the the moral questions are mm-hmm. around it. Yeah, there was uh, also another app. I don't know if this is the same creator, uh, but there is an app called Deep Nude where uh, you can basically take an image of a woman, fully clothed woman, but this app, and it's apparently really easy to use, and it will basically make the image look like the woman is completely naked. What's interesting is people that have been affected by this, uh, there are victims uh, of, actually, I'm not sure if it was by Deep Nude, but at any rate, there, there have been victims female victims whose images have been taken without their consent and then their faces would be put on a nude image or something like that and it was disseminated and what these victims say is that even though this is not really my body I can't help but feel like I've been violated that my naked body has been seen by thousands of people right so that you just can't get away from that that psychological association right like your your face is there a number of weeks ago, we talked about the use of image in video gaming, for example, right? And so even though a virtual image, even though it's nothing more than just zeros and ones at the end of the day, but it actually portrays someone. And so we have this idea that these images aren't just neutral things. It, it, it somehow takes the value from the actual person. And it carries some dignity with it. You know, it's, it's fascinating how that works. Yeah, and I think uh, along with that, Steve, there's a, a moral and legal culpability that goes along with it that's a bit ambiguous. Um, I remember, uh, uh, I think it was about a year ago, I saw a news story, and this may even be related to what you were alluding to before, with uh, a number of celebrities whose faces were being taken and put on clips of, of naked women. And the article that I was reading, um, if I remember it correctly, it was uh, talking about the moral and legal ambiguity of the whole situation because it's not actually them. It's not actually their body. Mm -hmm. Uh, So how do you deal with the fact that it is your face, but it's not your body? And so there's some legal gray area in in terms of that. And... um, like how do you how do you prosecute something like that, and what what is, what are the fair use and uh, freedom of expression issues around that? Uh, but just to expand upon what you were uh, talking about with Deep Nude, um, that the whole issue with the Deep Nude app it popped up on June twenty sixth in uh, Vice's tech publication. So Vice is a a media website. And in their tech publication is called Motherboard, and that they reported that they found the deepfake app called Deep Nude. And unlike deepfake apps in the past, where someone's face was taken and, as I, as I said, placed on someone else's body, uh, what this one does, as you, you mentioned, Steve, is it takes photos of women and removes their clothing so it looks like they are realistically naked. And Motherboard claimed that they downloaded and tested this app on more than a dozen pictures of both men and women. And they said that what they found was that while the app does not work on women who are fully clothed very well, that it worked best on images where people were already showing some skin. And there's this quote from the article that says that the results vary dramatically, but when fed a well-lit, high-resolution image of a woman in a bikini facing the camera directly, the fake nude images are passably realistic. 
that's kind of scary if I think about it. You know, Motherboard even tested on several several images that they worked on in the article with photos of well-known celebrities like Taylor Swift and Gal Gadot and Tyra Banks. And while some of the rendered pictures, they came up with catchable errors, the article still said these are very scarily realistic. And one of the biggest things around deepfakes, I think, isn't necessarily that the technology exists. Uh, it's like when you go to the theater and you see the show, some of these computer-generated images of individuals, and like you said, video games, where they're incredible. And we have movies where we now have digital recreations of people who no longer are alive. Uh, I think of the last, um, or not the last, uh, one of the most recent Star Wars movies where they had Princess Leia. Right. And I remember watching that on the screen and thinking, hmm, there's something a little bit off about that Leia. Um, <laughs> because you could you you could tell that it wasn't, you know, the young actress. Um, but... But I think the, the bigger issue surrounding around this is that this is becoming accessible. Uh, it's becoming more uh, available. You know, it doesn't take hours and days and sometimes years to render these things. You can just do it with a, a click of the button. Um, and actually, they were in one of the articles, they were, they were interviewing a guy named um, Hanik Farad, who is a computer science professor at UC Berkeley. And he's an expert on deepfakes, or at least the article outlines him as an expert on deepfakes. And uh, they said he was shocked at how easily the app created these fakes. Because in the past, anything that was rendered uh, that was remotely realistic, it, it would take hours. But, but with this, it took, I think they said 30 seconds to render an image. That's pretty scary. I think the, you're right. The ease with which you can do these things is... It kind of adds to the problem, right? Where I mean, if you think about it, and the the articles that you sent me point this out too, that really you don't need Deep New to do this. You can do this with Photoshop. But what Deep New does is that it makes it so easy that people that don't have any particular technical expertise in this area can do this just in mere seconds, like you said. Yeah, and I think it... It brings up some interesting questions if we probe into, you know, our societal worldview, because our society gives a lot of lip service to things like subjectivism. And we hear things like, if it's right for you, it's right for you. And if it's right for me, it's right for mm -hmm. me. Uh, and Nietzsche is famous for saying, you have your way, I have my way. As for the right way, the true way, it does not exist. And so we've sort of swallowed this idea. Um, that as long as you're happy doing it, then it's not the worst thing in the world. Obviously, the caveat, a lot of people would preface that with saying, well, as long as it's not hurting someone, as long as it's not infringing on someone. But it does bring up the interesting question of what standard of morality mm -hmm. uh, is sort of a moral outrage grounded on, on this type of thing. Um, or even, you know, it was a number of years ago that the Ashley Madison um, online, uh, oh, what would you call it? It's a, it's a website that promotes 
extramarital affairs, basically. So people sign up for different profiles, married people specifically. And uh, if you find a match, for example, in your area, then and you can get together and have, uh, have an affair. Their slogan was even, you know, life is too short, have an affair. And there was a big, huge problem a while ago because somebody hacked into their system and they released all of the, the names that should have been deleted, but Mashley Madison apparently didn't do that. Uh, they still had the records somewhere deep inside their network. And uh, these hackers threatened to release this information, and they did eventually. And there were all kinds of names coming out, anywhere from just Joe Blow to pastors or, or, or uh, seminary teachers, you know, that, that sort of thing. And that created a lot of reaction, obviously. Yeah, and every once in a while, we have these these examples of things that I think really poke holes in our societies wanting to give lip service to subjectivism. That, you know, you do have your way, and that's your way, and I have my way, and that's my way. That is until, you know, you sign up for Ashley Madison. Or uh, I think of individuals like um, uh, Tiger Woods or Arnold Schwarzenegger, who had extramarital affairs and were largely crucified by the media and the public for doing so. And as much as we give a certain clout to uh, subjectivism, I mean, at the end of the day, I think we all know, and especially with these issues, Steve, around sexuality and uh, bodily autonomy, I think it's, uh, it's a good example of the fact that we're uncomfortable with things like deep fakes because we acknowledge that that our bodies are sacred and that this type of technology that's popping up, it's really a violation of something intrinsic that we know is valuable. Even though we'll talk about, you know, the hookup culture and cheap sex, we know that there's something about our bodily autonomy and sex that is, is sacred and, and should be treasured and shouldn't just be, um, loosely thrown around, uh, although it's often done so in society a little bit too much. Yeah, I think even in our laws that is reflected, right, we, on the one hand, seem to have this view that, oh, it's just a body, right? At the end of the day, it's just sex, it's just a body. But on the other hand, we can't get away from recognizing that there's something sacred about the body because even in our laws we we make the distinction between assault and sexual assault right if it's just a body why do we make that distinction and so i think this this is a good example that that shows us that deep down inside we recognize that there is something more to us than just our bodies or just our psychology or or anything like that. Yeah, and, and I think um, even some of the developers for this technology, uh, they, I think they recognized to a certain degree that there was a little bit of a, a what they were developing was a little bit morally problematic. Even on that, um, that Motherbird article, they talked about, uh, or talked to, rather, one of the developers. And he basically argued that although he originally, he struggled with the moral premise of some of the, the technology that he was developing, he argued that at the end of the day, the invention of this type of app was inevitable. 
the quote that, that's in the article is he said, I also said to myself, the technology is ready and within everyone's reach. So if someone has bad intentions, having deep new doesn't change much. If I don't do it, someone else will do it in a year. And that inevitability argument is that even if pornography companies and other websites ban this type of technology, which has actually been done with some of these deep fake videos, is that some of these some of these websites have have actually banned uh, this technology. This individual's argument is that they're just going to pop up in other places, and the argument being that this is part of an inevitable reality that we live in, and that's why I think. A really important part of the discussion around deepfakes is how organizations and regulatory bodies are really going to detect and regulate deepfakes. And when you essentially develop a technology that can alter reality in a realistic manner so that people will see something that they think, hey, man, that might be real. It's also going to be incredibly important to train people to be able to identify these things and make software that, that makes it easy to detect. But at a deeper level, I think, I think what we've been highlighting with the moral reality of these things is that we recognize that there is a standard that we are violating and that we're uncomfortable with some of the ideology that we've, we've been adopting within society. Just quickly going back to that inevitability argument, I just found the Motherboard article really interesting that developer when he said, yeah, if I don't do it, somebody else will. And I thought to myself as I was reading this, why the race to the bottom, right? Uh, So somebody else is going to do it, so I should do it, even if you think this is morally problematic, or somehow that somebody else is going to do it makes it okay that you do it. For example, if we're talking, while we're talking about sexuality, right, um, people, other men rape women, so I should be able to do that too? I mean, clearly that doesn't make sense. Just because just because somebody else might unfortunately inevitably do it doesn't mean that you are now permitted to do the same thing or that you should even do it. Um, and so that argument in the first place didn't really convince me. And I, and I found, found it really interesting. Towards the end of that Motherboard article, the, that developer also says that uh, apparently they're um, their server crashed because they got so much traffic after this motherboard article got out. Um, I guess people got curious, and and these developers they got so much traffic on their system, everything crashed. And what the guy said was, "Our society is not ready for deep nude." Right? What he said was like, "We thought maybe we'll make a sale here, make a sale there." Um, and I was thinking to myself, "What do you mean ready?" What does it look like for our society to be ready to use an app that undresses women and objectifies women? And so that's where I just thought, man, like, because I just can't see a society being ready for something like that as if it is now okay, right, to objectify women. But um, he evidently things that there is a point where, yeah, it is okay to objectify women. Yeah, I think there are a number of layers of complexity and potentially depravity of of looking through and trying to sift through exactly how this works. And, and exactly like you said, uh, there's this issue with 
the ethical completeness of it. I mean, if you if you pull through the argument of inevitability in regards to a range of topics, I mean, obviously, it's the argument starts to break down. Uh, like you said, you know, if if I don't do it, someone else is going to do it. Well, I mean, that's true for a range of issues of things that nobody should be doing anyways. Never mind things that you can profit on like this. But it's just, uh, it's interesting. And I think, I think some of this comes from the fact that, you know, we're living in a decade that the decades previous have sort of given us a perception on uh, sexuality and a particularly feminine sexuality. And some of these things are, unfortunately, it's a complex result of the fact that we've told people, we've told women that they're not sexual objects, but that they still should be doing these things of, of, of revealing themselves in ways and that that actually gives them bodily autonomy and um, gives them some sort of power. As long as it's consensual, right? Because consent seems to be the big yes, exactly. um, justifier yeah. for just about everything. As long as it doesn't harm anybody else and there is consent, anything goes, really. Yeah, it's interesting. I was reading an article recently um, on the issue of, of what psychologists call pluralistic ignorance. And in the back of my mind, after I'd been reading these these articles on, on deepfakes, basically what, what pluralistic ignorance is, is there's this psychologist at Princeton University, Deborah Prentice, I think is the way you pronounce her last name. She says that pluralistic ignorance is a phenomenon in which you feel like you're different from everybody else, but in fact, you are exactly the same. And it's a kind of illusory deviance. So it's a sense that you are not with the majority that everyone else in the majority can have simultaneously. So basically, uh, what it highlighted is the fact that there are certain things where society, it'll say A is right, but in reality, in the back of everybody's minds, Within society, the majority of them will not actually think A is right. So a couple of the examples they used, uh, the binge drinking culture in university, that uh, if you poll students in public, uh, they'll say, oh, yeah, we love the binge drinking culture, like the partying culture. But in reality, um, that there's, there's a little bit of a social pressure to verbalize that those things are actually more enjoyable than people really believe that they are. And while I was while I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the sexual ethic of our culture and wondering, you know, how many people actually think that sleeping with whoever you want to, whenever you want to, however you want to do it, do they really think that that is a good thing? Or are we just giving credence within this idea of pluralistic ignorance? Because in in the movies we're watching, and in uh, in the news, uh, the magazines, and the newsstand, and in our advertising, we're constantly being bombarded with these images of over-sexualized individuals. And I think things like this reaction against deep nude and and uh, deep fakes, I think those are some of the cracks in our cultural ideology at large that shows that no, we really do realize that there is a moral and ethical problem with the fact that we cheapen sex, that we cheapen 
uh, love that we cheapen relationships by making sex into something that obviously uh, you and I, Steve, uh, coming from the Christian worldview would say that it was never meant to be to begin right. with. Um, before we wrap up today, there was one other thing that I wanted to kind of touch on too, because it, it like I said earlier at the beginning, this whole thing about deep fakes and deep new, it actually reveals something about what we believe about truth. Because people say, you know, we live in this postmodern culture and, you know, truth is really subjective. You have your truth and I have my truth, that sort of a thing. But when something like deep fakes start coming out, all of a sudden truth is very important. What we don't want to do is say, you know, have a politician that is beloved by some people, right? And have his face put on somebody else's face and make it sound like he has endorsed something that he's never endorsed before and things like that. And so all of a sudden, reality isn't just what you perceive. If it's not redundant to say it this way, there is the real reality behind things independent of your perception, right? That external reality that is independent of your of your perception. So then the question is, are we perceiving this correctly? Are we actually getting what is real? And so when we're talking about deep fakes, I find that uh, hardly anybody is, um, is a subjectivist, like epistemological subjectivist, people who say, oh, truth is just completely relative. It's just all how you perceive things. I find that when something like this pops up, all of a sudden, everybody really quickly turns into objectivists, right? Like there is reality out there and we need to get at it. And we kind of, in an underhanded way, give a compliment to the reliability of our perceptions. We are the kinds of beings that can perceive reality correctly. Something like deep fake actually gets in the way of that, right? It's basically what we... Uh, seem to be saying to ourselves. And so in all of this, what I'm seeing is that there are certain things, certain moral and epistemological things, right? Uh, the, how we know things. We can't seem to get away from it, right? Because we are moral creatures and we are creatures that are oriented around truth. Truth actually matters to us. Morality actually matters to us. And we can't seem to get away from that. And I think that says something about the kinds of beings that we are, and you and I would probably attribute that as Christians to the image of God in us. Yeah, I've never truly been convinced by the post-truth mantra. I don't think I don't think we have ever lived in a in a post-truth age, and I don't think we we do currently live in a post-truth age because, like you said, Steve, at the end of the day, when the theoretical rubber hits the practical road. We know that it only goes so far as, say, our bank accounts or something. I remember a number of years ago during my undergrad, I was working at a garden center part time. And there was this other coworker who knew I was a believing Christian and would always sort of want to banter back and forth with me about certain issues. And he'd constantly be saying, you know, oh, well, tr truth is relative, truth is relative. And one day he was poking at me a little bit. We were out in the the soil yard where you would sell the bags of soil. And, and we were just standing there. It was a slower day, rainy day. And he brought up this fact that, you know, uh, Wes, you know, in reality, truth is relative. And he'd use examples. Uh, like if you remember a few years back, you had the, the dress 
whether the dress was blue. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, whether whether it was blue and black or gold and white. He'd use examples like that. I think this was actually before that whole thing blew up. But he'd talk yeah, about... Yeah, I, th- I think it might be helpful to explain to our listeners what that was all about. So there was this dress, the picture of this dress that was going around on the internet. And some people would swear that this dress was, what was it, golden white? And then other people would swear that this dress was, no, in fact, blue and something else, right? And so there was this whole thing. There were these two camps, each just swearing that they're seeing this correctly. But it it turns out, um, which one was it? Um, At the end of the day, the, the dress was gold and white. It wasn't blue and black. Right. Um, but the the lighting of this picture and this this little shop in the UK and the way that our eyes take in light, depending on that, uh, it, it could seem to one person like one color and to another person staring at the exact same picture as a completely different color. Mm-hmm. And I think it is good to highlight the fact that there are subjective truths in that way. Uh, but at the end of the day, there was a color. I mean, this yeah. we're not talking about ice cream flavors that, you know, uh, chocolate is, is better than vanilla. When we talk about realities, that there is a truth. And that's what this individual at the garden center that I was working with, he was poking me on this. And earlier that day, I, I knew he would, he'd been talking about, he got the new Samsung Galaxy phone. And so uh, I just sort of interrupted him and I said, hey, uh, do you mind if I look at your phone? And he pulled it out and he handed it over to me and I, I promptly put it in my pocket. And he kind of said, oh, well, what are you doing, Wes? And I said, well, you've convinced me. You know, truth is relative. And what I think is right is that your phone should be my phone. <laughs> and you could see, you know, the wheels turning. And he's like, oh, this is, this is clearly not where I, where I was heading. And actually, believe it or not, I walked around with his phone for four hours that day. <laughs> because he did not, he did not want to admit that um, he was wrong. And at, at the end of the day, I finally, you know, I, I ran into him in the store and I, I handed him his phone back and I said, nah, "I'm just joking. You didn't convince me of anything, and you know it." And so I think this idea of post post truthism um, that despite all of the the lip service that we'll give to it, we know deep down that that there are absolutes, particularly in morality, and that taking something like Taylor Swift's head and putting it on a nude body is is wrong. It's a violation. And that a married man shouldn't be signing up for an Ashley Madison account. That's still wrong. And that Tiger Woods should not have serial marital affairs. We know that these things are wrong and that we shouldn't be doing them. So I, I think part of these things, Steve, that you and I have been talking about, I think they highlight cracks in a secular worldview that really help to pinpoint the reality that there is a truth and that that truth can realistically only be grounded in a worldview that gives an ability for those truths to actually be communicated. Right on. Um, I think we're out of time now. I mean, I could talk on this uh, on and on, but uh, we'll have to cut it off here yeah it's it's actually really exciting to have you on our team now and to be able to hear your voice on our podcast regularly i'm sure a lot of listeners feel the same i really appreciate your insights and the way you communicate yourself so i'm loving this you betcha onward and upward all right well thank you listeners for joining us the ac podcast is a ministry of apologetics canada and we'll come back next week with more stuff to think about until then ciao